This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. The Underdog Podcast from SB Nation and Underdog Dynasty. Happy New Year and welcome back to the Conference USA Underdog Podcast on UnderdogDynasty.com, SB Nation's home for G5 football. Hope you had a very happy holiday season. I know I did. Uh, Eric Henry and Joe Lundergan with you once again to talk all things USA and recap a very busy bowl season and uh, cover some postseason awards and some other things happening in CUSA football as we move into the roaring 20s. I think that's what we should call him. Eric Henry, how was your holiday season, bud? You know what? It was a pretty solid holiday season here. As someone who I know you and I have talked about it on a previous podcast, I am more of a Thanksgiving person than a Christmas person. We both are foodies. So uh, the uh, lack of emphasis on food and the heavy emphasis on gifts uh, doesn't make Christmas necessarily my favorite time of the year. But nevertheless, it was a good holiday season. I'm not going to be a Grinch in that regard. Uh, I know for you, um, you had some uh, eventful news as well. So I know it's a good holiday season on, uh, on your end. I did. It was a, it was a crazy busy holiday season. So I feel like I left my house like the second week of December. And then I was in New York city for work for about a week. And then I flew to Kentucky to do Christmas with my girlfriend's family where I proposed and it was successful. Uh, if you guys don't follow me on Twitter, um, got engaged. So that was a big thing for me. Um, and then from there, uh, went and spent about two weeks in uh, luxurious Fort Myers, Florida, um, which if you can't detect the sarcasm in my voice with my cold, uh, Fort Myers, not, not the best part of Florida by any means, but uh, hung out with my, my parents and uh, my my maternal side of the family. So it was uh, super busy and uh, all good stuff. Looking forward to another, uh, hopefully uh, productive decade here. Thank God, Florida Gulf Coast university does not have a football team or else we, uh, we just buried their city. <laughs> oh my gosh. I know. Like, which side note, did you see, I want to say it was a couple months ago. I guess they do have a club team. And the coach was trying to like <laughs> offer kids scholarships or something like that. Uh, of, of course, I, you know, being here at the Sunshine State, I absolutely saw that. And I, you know, I, I shouldn't laugh because in all seriousness, I felt bad how I ended up finding out about it. And for those of you listening who may not know, um, like Joe said, uh, FGCU has a club team, but you know, with a lot of kids, I mean, we know the pressure there is for kids to be, to get recruited and, you know, secure a scholarship and things of that nature. A lot of kids, unfortunately, I don't think did the research and knew that this was a club football team that 
um, was reaching out to them. So a lot of them were going on Twitter and saying, hey, I was just offered, you know, doing the whole, you know, song and dance on Twitter about, I just want to thank God for my first offer from FGCU. And, you know, a lot of these kids didn't realize that, guys, it's a club team. It's it's not a it's not NAIA, it's not D3, it's not D2, it's not anything. So, uh, yeah, unfortunately, I did see that, you know, and, and those kids were smartened up. Yeah, that's just such a weird thing when you, you know, I get that you got to recruit somehow if you're if you're a club coach, you got to get kids on, you know, in your team somehow. But yeah, I don't know. It, it It's crazy to me that sometimes these kids don't uh, do the research. But also, I, I get that at the same time, I did play high school football with a kid who, uh, you know, got a, a pretty, you know, standard recruitment packet from Yale which was you know just information about camps and that sort of thing and he thought it was a scholarship offer (laughs) and you know which can tell you right there this kid was not academically qualified to go to Yale uh but yeah I think it's it's interesting that you have so many recruits who uh you know when they first start the whole process of getting recruited don't uh you know learn their learn the hard way that you got to do the research Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I I remember, you know, to take it kind of, you know, all the way on the opposite direction. I remember a kid who felt the pressure so much to uh, to be recruited that he formed his own uh, mythical recruitment from a school that he was not being recruited by and did the whole song and dance. And, uh, you know, this was uh, to kind of give you an idea. This was uh, I probably was a freshman or sophomore in high school. So you're talking about a little bit before the uh, huddle slash 24 or 247 sports days where mm-hmm. you could actually get away with, you know, hey, I'm being recruited by Team X and, you know, do the whole press conference. And then like, wait a minute, Team X is like, no, nah, we don't know who you are, dude. So, so yeah, <laughs> it, uh, it goes both ways, unfortunately. Yeah, I think uh, it's weird how the uh, age of recruitment has changed things, but uh, it's definitely worked out for for some programs getting to look at some of these kids uh, in advance with all the huddles and and YouTube and that sort of thing. Uh, And one of those programs certainly is the Charlotte 49ers. They've been recruiting up a storm and uh, Will Healy just single handedly, it seems in a year has taken that program from, uh, you know, the basement of the conference to uh being relevant and getting to the first ever bowl game unfortunately didn't really go their way in the bahamas bowl as we begin the bowl season recap for cosa um buffalo taking that game 31 to 9 over the 49ers uh just to start this off as i'm thinking about what all went down in this game i think you really have to give it up for buffalo running back jared patterson who totaled 173 yards and two touchdowns on 32 touches um, you know, just to kind of give a broad uh, stroke of the G5, I think Buffalo is a great program and they're clearly on the rise here. So, um, it, you know, it was interesting to see them come through with flying colors in this game. Uh, but on the CUSA side, it was certainly disappointing to see Charlotte's offensive trio of Chris Reynolds, Ben LeMay and Victor Tucker uh, more or less completely neutralized for the most part. Uh, so Buffalo's defense clearly did their job. Um, you know, just to kind of give you a sense of like, the fact that seemingly like nothing really went right for Charlotte in this game, their best play was a 51 yard touchdown by Victor Tucker, who, uh, you know, had some really fancy footwork maneuvering through like the entire defense to get to the end zone. And then they missed the extra point. (laughs) So that was certainly uh, disappointing to see. Um, But no shame for Charlotte in finishing the season seven and six, when you consider where they were even, you know, a season ago, Uh, but a disappointing end nonetheless, I think. 
Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned Jarrett Patterson. I'm going to go to the other side of the ball and mention Buffalo's defense. And I remember when we did preview this game, I thought that Charlotte would win. That probably has more to do with maybe my perception. And once again, I'm probably biased as, you know, our Conference USA, you know, the league we cover. Uh, I, I believe that Conference USA is a stronger league than the MAC. Obviously, this game proved me otherwise in terms of that matchup. But uh, I was going to go to Buffalo's defense. Five sacks overall. I think they had kept Chris Reynolds you know, under duress throughout most of the game. So that certainly didn't do Charlotte any favors. Reynolds went 15 of 24 for 198. You mentioned the touchdown pass to Victor Tucker. Outside of that, not much going in the passing game. And Benny LeMay, 13 carries to 45 yards. This game reminded me of Charlotte's loss to FAU earlier this year, in which you could tell they wanted to get Benny going, but they couldn't early and that coupled with falling behind early really forced him to go away from the rushing attack. And uh, that obviously is not the biggest formula for success for Charlotte, but yeah, like you mentioned, you know, coming from where they came from, I obviously have, if you've listened to this show, you know, I've been high on not not necessarily, you know, Charlotte thinking, okay, you know, they're going to win a bunch of games. Although I've probably been higher than maybe you were initially. I was a lot higher on their talent. I always felt that the talent was there for them to make a a quick turnaround and Will Haley's gotten the most out of that talent. And, you know, Hey, first bowl game is a, is a success. You can't doubt that. We'll see where they go from here. They're going to lose Benny LeMay. They're going to lose Alex Highsmith, but they do have some guys coming back next year and all in all, nothing to hang their heads about, you know, playing uh, down in the Bahamas bowl isn't a bad first bowl experience for any uh any program so i'm sure they uh can celebrate that and uh tag take you know a lot of positives from this year into the offseason absolutely the charlotte program took a major step forward this season in will healy's uh first official one at the helm as head coach and um you have to like the track that they're on overall uh on the flip side of that uh, you have UAB, who you can't help but think took a small step backwards this season uh, following their 2018 campaign where they won COSA. Uh, in the New Orleans Bowl, they lose to App State 31-17. to uh, Blazers actually started the game 14 to nothing and then quickly lost that lead uh, in the following quarters. App State really seemed to have this team outmatched physically and athletically. Uh, They had two fumble returns for touchdowns for Pete's sake. Um, And on the rushing side, another really frustrating performance from UAB only accumulating 40 yards. So for the Blazers, again, you can't help feel like this, this season was kind of a small step back, even kind of fighting through uh, some of the injuries and just like weird mistakes that they seem to cover because yeah, they were in contention for COSA West all the way to the end, but at the same time, this is this this team for much of this year seemed like there was a pretty clear difference between you know the team that took the field in 2018 and the team that took the field in 2019. Yeah, first things first, you know, give credit to App State. You know, unfortunately, they suffered that loss. I believe it was to. Georgia Southern or some slip up they had during the Sun Belt, and you can really wish that they didn't have mm-hmm. it because, you know, they uh, went 13 and one. If they don't suffer that loss, maybe they uh, push to be the G5 representative. But you know, to flip it to the UAB side, I-, I think the emphasis is small in terms of what you said in terms of a step back. I think it is a small step back, but I think in the long run this is going to benefit them because they had to discover what they do or don't have at the quarterback position. We know they have Tyler Johnson. We know they have Dylan Hopkins, right? And I think this year went a long way in establishing, you know, sure, you would have liked to have seen uh, Tyler Johnson play better, but I think it went a long way in establishing that he still has a ways to go. 
to take that next step and to be considered in the upper echelon of CUSA quarterbacks. I know that was a question that coming into this year, coming off of the Boca Raton Bowl win uh, in 2019 or 2018, the 2019 Cherry Bundy Boca Raton Bowl, if I have that correctly, mm-hmm. last season's bowl win, uh, that they were they were thinking, hey, maybe we have a player here in Tyler Johnson. And they were able to learn this year that, you know, very talented guy, but still has some steps to go forward. You talked about the rushing game. That obviously was the biggest disappointment, not just in this game, but the entire season. Spencer Brown, never really healthy. Lucius Stanley, other guys like that had to step up, and I think that's going to be a big thing. If Spencer Brown can come back and be the player that we know that ran for 1,200, almost 1,300 yards in his sophomore year, UAB will be fine. They did suffer quite a few losses on the defensive side. You know, guys like Christopher Mole and and Garrett Moreno will be departing from – Birmingham, but all things considered, uh, once again, I think the emphasis is on small, you know, a nine and five year, you can't, you know, can't shrug your shoulders at that. But I think specifically, you know, in, in relation to what you're talking about, the fact that they ended the year with two straight losses that were pretty much in very decisive fashion, that's kind of tough for a program that, you know, uh, has been one of the top programs in Conference USA over the past two years. And uh, one thing I'm going to make an effort to do in 2020 is I'm going to try to stop framing everything with UAB within the con the the, the construct of oh you know they got the program back. Uh, it's a phenomenal story that they did, but I think we're far enough removed from that now to where we can judge them and say hey you know they performed well since they've been back. So we won't say hey they got nine wins, but they're not dead. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, mm-hmm. uh, so I think I'll try to stop framing them uh, within that context in 2020 and just look at them, you know, uh, on a kind of an even playing field and say that, yeah, the nine wins is nice, but the way they ended the year was a bit of a disappointment. I've certainly been as guilty of that as, as anybody in our space, I think in terms of framing UAB based on, the fact that they didn't have a program a few years ago and certainly credit to Bill Clark for what he's done in that, uh, in that window of time since. But I think you're absolutely correct in that, you know, the expectations for this program based on last season uh, should be pretty high. Um, Have a great coach, have a great, uh, you know, area of the country to recruit in. And they've been pretty successful in that. It just comes down to execution. And I think for the better part of this year, they did not do that to the best of their ability. Um, one program that I don't think you can say that about, especially this year, FAU, they win the Boca Raton Bowl 52-28 to 28 here. Uh, this team was so good all year. And to turn in this kind of performance against a good SMU team was really satisfying to see as a CUSA. Uh, fan Um, complete game by both the offense and the defense Uh, in particular Chris Robinson 305 yards through the air and two touchdowns for him I think he showed that he should have won COSA player of the year personally we'll get into kind of the debate over the player of the year awards later in the show but I think that was just kind of worth noting I think you know, he he showed the kind of leader and the kind of player that he's become to have such a dominant day against, again, a good SMU team out of the American in the bowl game. I think it was just kind of a, a great way to cap off his uh, his campaign at FAU. Yeah, you know, we can't go backwards and talk about the coaching surge and say, you know, what if here and there, but I'll be damned, Joe. Uh, Chris Tooley, James Pierre on the defensive side, you know, uh, Zion Gilbert, Rashad Smith. You're talking about guys who, I mean, they were talented guys, especially Rashad Smith, talented guys coming into the year. 
But just uh, the leaps and bounds as far as how good they looked during that bowl game against a really potent SMU pass attack in relation to, you know, maybe how they looked in week two and week three, you, you can't help but wonder, you know, how good they might be had they given Glenn Spencer the job. Of course, Willie Taggart is the coach. We'll have to see, you know, they're going to have to make a concerted effort to put that decision and that phase behind them and play well for him. But man, I just, I, that's the thing I was impressed with the most. Cause I honestly, like you mentioned, that's a really good SMU team with a really good passing attack in Shane Bouchelle and James Prochet. And just the fact that Thule and Pierre and, 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 you know, self-admittedly, I haven't been the biggest James Pierre fan all year, despite the fact that I, I believe he led the league in, in interceptions. Uh, I think he got like two or three of those in one game. Uh, so I just was really impressed with the way he stepped up and, you know, they played well against a really talented passing attack. And yeah, you hit the nail on the head with Chris Robinson. It just 27 to 37 for 305. He looked like, you know, and, and I'm taking this from my buddy Jake Elman, who covers the team from the Palm Beach Post. He really looked like there was nothing that was going to stop him and proving that, hey, I know all the talk is about SMU's passing attack. And, you know, we've kind of gotten here with the uh, overwhelming kind of, you know, theme that Lane Kiffin brought us here. But I'm out to show that these players on this team are pretty good themselves, and he did just that. So kudos to FAU. I know there was some disappointment among the Owl faithful that they they didn't get a chance to travel for the second straight bowl game. If you remember, they also played in the Boca Raton Bowl in 2017. But, you know, hey, I I, I don't think you can beat, you know, closing out the year on your home field with a win and a really decisive win. So great job by the Owls. Absolutely. And I mean, to kind of piggyback on that against FAU fans being upset they can't travel. And then on the other side, you had Charlotte fans upset that they had to travel to the Bahamas Bowl. I don't feel like you can really win in this conference in terms of where you go for a bowl game. We, we talked about it on the last show, but there's not really that many destination bowl games, except for, ironically, the Boca Raton Bowl. And you know, the majority of the, the diehard FAU fans that are you know going to home games anyway – they're already there. So, you know, I guess you just kind of have to appreciate the fact that when you talk about destination games, you're already there. And I promise you, you're probably going to enjoy yourself more in Boca Raton than you would, uh, you know, at some of the other locations that CUSA gets to go for bowl games every year. Um, but yes, and I will agree with you, you on your a, other you going. location in mind, Joe? <laughs> What'd you say? Do you have a location in mind? Uh, I don't know. How about... Montgomery, Alabama, site of the Camellia Bowl for uh, the next game that we're going to talk about. But I will say, uh, and I mean, let's let's be honest. Most of the, and I can say this as somebody who spent so much time in in Florida and in the South, pretty much all the cities on this bowl game on this list of places that CUSA goes. But I digress. Um, I will agree with your point, though, and I mean this with zero disrespect to Willie Taggart and his staff because we don't know what they're going to do. Uh, but if you're not bummed that Glenn Spencer is leaving and you're an FAU fan, you should be because the defense this year has been arguably the best it's looked in the history of that program. So looking forward to seeing how they followed it up, looking forward to seeing what Glenn Spencer does as he moves on to the University of South Florida and looking to see what all those players do uh, once they move on from that program. Uh, but I've digressed enough. Let's talk about the Camellia Bowl in Montgomery, Alabama, where we saw another CUSA loss, unfortunately, Arkansas State beating FIU 34-26. to uh, highlight of this game, uh, just in general, was probably Arkansas State quarterback Lane Hatcher. Four touchdowns for him was undoubtedly the difference maker for his team. Extremely close game in every aspect. 
uh, Eric Henry, you know, as you do with pretty much every FIU game, you were there to take it all in in person. What did you see here? Before I, I head into the game analysis, I just uh, I, I kind of led Joe down that rabbit hole here, so I can't let him go down there alone. Uh, my good friend who uh, who covers college football, Emily Van Buskirk, she covers for another publication. Uh, it really kind of you know set in when she covered the Rose Bowl and the uh, Cheez-It Bowl, and she posted on Twitter, hey – you know, uh, enjoying the uh, pre-bowl game swag. And I guess they had some of the media out there at a Top Golf in Phoenix. Mm-hmm. And your truly was with a handful of FIU fans in a Montgomery alleyway trying to decide which bar we should go to next because one of the FIU fans was kicked out of the bar. So <laughs> this uh, compare and contrast. Uh, <laughs> bowl destinations there. Um, but and, and I also made five trips to Waffle House. I digress. Um, <laughs> <laughs> nice excuse my language i'm dead ass serious about those trips to waffle house i made five all right um as we as we talk about the the bowl game here uh okay so the big thing here i, I think for uh the conference usa side was fiu they got off to a bit of a slow start and you know the the matchup in this one was the high-powered passing attack of Arkansas State, the combination of Lane Hatcher and Omar Bayless versus one of the top pass defenses, not only in Conference USA, but in the nation in FIU. I believe at the time they came into that game ranked eighth and fewest passing yards allowed. And the the FIU offense got to a slow start, but Joe, uh, they held that passing attack, which was ranked top 25 in the nation for Arkansas State. Lane Hatcher went 14-35 in the first half. So it wasn't a matter of, you know, the passing attack being really potent. What it was is that the FIU offense kind of struggled in the first half and that also give credit to Arkansas State. They just have a stud in Omar Bayless, who on the first drive made four catches for 28 yards and a touchdown, and that score put them ahead. It was a close game at the half. Then Arkansas State pulled away in the in the second half. FIU put together a comeback. They they had a chance to cut the lead to, or excuse me, they had a chance to take the lead. Actually, go up one. Jose Borregales, who uh, to bring you inside, you know, the press box there. I want to say about seventy-five to eighty percent of the media members had him penciled in as their game MVP because he had gone four for four, had nailed two straight kicks from from forty-five plus and then a chip shot from 26 yards to give FIU the lead, and he pushed it left in weather conditions that, you know, they weren't quite as bad as uh, FIU played in uh, pretty much a monsoon in Murfreesboro earlier this year. It wasn't quite that bad, but it was a cold, rainy evening in Montgomery, and give credit once again to Arkansas State because on the ensuing drive, it was just the Lane Hatcher and Omar Bayless show. Omar Bayless actually won game MVP as I try to pull back his stats up here again, nine catches for a buck 80 and one touchdown. And he actually dropped another surefire touchdown. So, you know, he really was a stud in that game for FIU. I mentioned Borregales, Austin Maloney uh, actually set the bowl game record with 10 catches for a buck 78 and one touchdown. James Morgan went 22 of 38 for three twelve. Uh, once again, just, you know, a really valiant performance by FIU, but all things considered just didn't have enough in terms of, putting that slow start behind them. And uh, it was a tough loss. I mean, you saw the the looks on the, the faces of, of Morgan and Sage Lewis postgame, Butch Davis as well, you know, really frustrated. One of the things he, he said postgame is I think it's uh, the quote of uh, the night there is that he said, there's going to be a whole hell of a lot of changes in the way we do things to be a more consistent football team in 2020. So uh, I think that'll be the theme going forward if you're a Panther fan, but all things considered, Arkansas State gets the win. 
Yeah, it's interesting that Coach Davis says that because, you know, there, there clearly needs to be some sort of small changes. You know, you can definitely point to moments in the season where had one or two things kind of gone the other way, the whole season might have shifted for FIU. If, you know, if James Morgan didn't kind of get uh, didn't get hurt and frankly, just kind of mostly lose a step for a lot of this season, then you could argue some things would have gone FIU's way. Uh, definitely a couple of plays here and there. And I mean, you know, this bowl game, you know, you mentioned it when you broke down this game, they held a really good passing attack uh, to a pretty okay day and only ended up losing by, uh, you know, really eight points. Yeah. My math is correct on that one. So yeah, they were within one score of getting back, uh, you know, of, of tying this game. So overall you have to be frustrated if you're an FIU player or an FIU fan by how the season went, considering they were favored to, um, get to the conference championship game, if not win the conference outright. But uh, them's the breaks, so to speak. And uh, you have to think that Coach Davis is, is already working on a game plan for next season. Uh, moving on to uh, the state of Florida and the Gasparilla Bowl, UCF beating Marshall 48-25 to in this game. It was a rainy day in Tampa, and in the true spirit of Gasparilla, this game got sloppy. Uh, <laughs> we knew Marshall was going to live and die by their young quarterback, Isaiah Green. And in a metaphorical sense, they died. Uh, tough game for the young guy. Uh, nine of 23, 173 yards for one touchdown and two interceptions in this game. Uh, Brendan Knox, an okay day, 26 uh, carries for 103 yards. Um, but other than that, really struggled to get anything going uh, for the most part offensively. Uh, UCF jumped out to a really big lead in the first quarter and just never let it go. Yeah, so two days later after covering the Camellia Bowl, I made my way back to Tampa and, you know, covered this one. And it's kind of hard to say that a 23-point win isn't indicative of how far and away the game was even close. But – this game was not close. I mean, first off, you did mention the weather. It was sloppy. You know, you could see the rain coming in almost from the start of kickoff. But, it, Joe, there were times, just to be completely honest, and I don't mean this as an indictment on Doc Holliday's team, because I really, anyone who listens to this podcast knows I really am a fan of Doc Holliday and Marshall. It, it looked, once they got up, uh, they being UCF in the first quarter of 14-0, there were times where they looked like they were literally toying with them, as if they could, you know, try and I don't mean toying by trying trick plays and things of that nature I mean it looked as if they just were kind of experimenting on the fly to give you an example they went up I want to say it was 20 to 0 at the time and they just put in Daryl Mack for a series who's their backup quarterback uh, he promptly threw a pick I want to say it was on the second play of the drive then they put Dylan Gabriel back in and uh, he actually uh, I believe threw a touchdown pass to Otis Anderson um, uh, yeah, threw a touchdown pass to Otis Anderson, and like, all right, yeah, we're just back in control again. I mean, so you know, UCF. It's you look at their ten and three record, and you have to wonder, you know, a what they would be like had Mackenzie Milton been there, or you know, been healthy, or b what they would be like if Dylan Gabriel weren't a true freshman, because they literally were toying with Marshall at times in that game. And then you touch on Isaiah Green, that really was the big takeaway. You know, at times he just looked lost. He was benched for a couple series for Alex Thomason. And, and you could tell that, you know, Doc Holliday's kind of wanted to get him uh, a chance to sit down and kind of regain his composure because he went back out there and put together a nice drive. I believe it was in the second quarter when he put together a nice scoring drive. 
but just really could get nothing going. And there was a, a point, Joe, where um, I believe the first 20 – I want to say the first 28 points of the game were all either on defense or special teams, just on and weird, you know, kind of funky ways. So that was something that happened. One of Marshall's score actually came from, uh, I believe it's uh, not Devin Abraham, it's his brother. Oh man, it's going to kill me here. But uh, his, his, his Micah Abraham, there we go. His brother, Devin Abraham, played for USF. His father, Donnie Abraham, was a former Buccaneer. So that was kind of a shining moment there that Micah Abraham could get a pick six in the same stadium that his father started in for years so that was a nice moment for Marshall but all things considered you know just really outclassed by the Knights yeah like you mentioned really wasn't even close from the start UCF completely outmatching them and you know they don't need any more praise heaped on them frankly but uh solid program and a disappointing way to end the season if you're a Marshall fan I feel like we've said that a little bit too much over the course of this uh this show in terms of how COSA teams ended their season in this in these bowl games but uh it's definitely not going to be the case for these next two. Fortunately, in the Independence Bowl, Louisiana Tech beating the Miami Hurricanes fourteen to nothing. Um, I don't have too much to say about recapping this game. Uh, Jamar Smith, solid day for him. Thirteen of twenty-eight for one hundred and sixty-three yards with a touchdown. I believe he had an interception as well. I think you also have to really give your hat off to the Tech defense. Uh, forcing three turnovers and uh, holding the Miami offense to uh, 227 total yards, which is more than 100 yards less than what the Louisiana Tech offense was able to accumulate. Um, I will say, though, in terms of all of the CUSA bowl games that happened you know, in this past bowl season, I think I've thought about this game the most. And here's why. Uh, this was Louisiana Tech's, I believe, fifth consecutive bowl win, uh, which is a testament to what Skip Holtz has been able to do with this program. But when you think about this win uh, in the context of all that recent success, I wouldn't even say this, is, this was one of their better games, which, again, is a testament to how good of a coach you know, Skip Holtz is and the, the great uh, players that he's had come – play for him and win games over the course of the past half a decade or so. Um, but because the, the standard for six or what's the word I'm trying to look for here, because they have set the standard for success with uh, the amount of winning that they've done, you, you know, you just kind of expect it. Whereas with Miami, um, I think it's more indicative for them I think this loss for them is more indicative of the fact that this pro that program is not in a good spot. And I'll, I'll ask you, Eric, what means more here? The fact that tech won or the fact that Miami lost? Yeah, Joe. So it's interesting. You mentioned that, right? Especially being here in the sunshine state, because there have been a lot of talk about Miami and, you know, I, I'm not out to bash hurricane fans or things of that nature, but there's, things that there are things that are undeniable right the hurricanes have not been a sorry to say it the hurricanes have not been a relevant college football program in 15 years i, I mean that's just you know they have been a run-of-the-mill acc team in and and not relevant in the way that the quote-unquote hurricane legacy 
promotes them to be relevant, right? So uh, being here in Florida, all the talk was about, oh, my gosh, we lost to Louisiana Tech. How could this be? And we didn't score have any offense and such and such. Well, guess what? To piggyback into your other point, Louisiana Tech's been a very good program over the past 10 years, especially since Skip Holtz's arrival, much more so than the Hurricanes. So uh, on the flip side, you know, and I don't want to harp on the things that we've talked about earlier in the season, but if you're a Tech fan, this has got to be hard to swallow because you're right. They didn't play their best game. Uh, yes, Miami's defense is very good. I mean, that's something that you can say for all the struggles that UM has had over the past you know, decade and a half. Uh, defense hasn't necessarily always been one of them. But for all the struggles that, that you know, Tech's um, or that Miami's offense did have, uh, Tech's offense didn't play their best game by a stretch of the imagination. But the fact that Louisiana Tech did this without Amik Robertson, who um, is clearly their best player and has potential to be a first-round pick at cornerback. I mean, that's just outstanding. So, you know, if you're a Bulldog fan, this one is hard to swallow because it it almost makes you wonder, you know, kind of like in the same way I mentioned Appalachian State, what if they don't have those suspensions early on in the year? and or excuse me they don't have those suspensions late in the year you know because this easily could have been a team that won conference usa and maybe could have done more so i definitely hear both of your points and agree with them and i think this is just more of an indictment on or it's more of an indictment on the hurricanes and where they're at but also a reflection of how successful skip holtz has been and getting that program ready to go and they weren't intimidated and think about it you know they could have come out and laid an egg and said hey you know we don't have our best guy uh we are playing against the the hurricanes and uh you know a a g or excuse me a p5 opponent and not risen to the occasion but not only did they rise to the occasion they played outstanding on defense so you know completely agree with all your points there all right. Good to know I wasn't crazy in just how much I feel like I overanalyzed uh, what happened in that game in the context within uh, the conference and G5 football as a whole. And of course, Miami's overall irrelevance as a football program at this moment. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Um, but with that, then let's talk about the first responder bowl, Western Kentucky taking this one in dramatic fashion, 23 to 20 over Western Michigan, winning on an untimed down field goal uh, from Corey Munson from 52 yards out uh, real quick. Also school record, 17 catches for 148 yards and a touchdown for Mr. Lucky Jackson. Uh, when you talk about ending your career on a high note, it, you know, it, it, it really can't get too much better than that, especially when you consider, um, you know, kind of the rough go of it he's had in the past two season. And I really felt like he got underutilized during the Mike Sanford era when he was uh, a sophomore and a junior. Uh, but going back to the game-winning field goal, you have to be so happy for Corey Munson. Uh, He had such an up and down season and he ends it by winning the bowl game for his team on a last second career long field goal. 
yeah, you know, you're going to talk about that. And I think you do have to be really happy for Corey Munson because uh, like, I, I think if my memory serves me correct, he had missed a shorter field goal in that game, correct? Yes, correct. Right. So the fact that – and I think I, – I believe it was Elliot Pratt, you know, the uh, Western Kentucky beat writer for the Bowling Green Daily News. I believe he tweeted this out that – the <laughs> the coaching staff the the configuration of a lot of these stadiums in Conference USA or in G5 uh, a lot of the smaller stadiums tends to be one where the coaches are very close to the press box and and at times they have to walk through the press box to get to the coaches box so I say that as to say one of the I didn't catch the name of the coach but it's one of the offensive coaches who yelled at Elliot Pratt he made the one that matters you make sure you write that. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so uh, kind of a funny moment there. But what I was going to talk about was Lucky Jackson, who you did start to touch on it that, you know, he doesn't really get the credit he deserves because they, and I tweeted this out that because of the lack of success on the field during the Mike Sanford era, you know, he kind of went overshadowed. Joe, would it shock you if I said that Lucky Jackson was top 20 all time in Conference USA in receptions and receiving yards? It would a little bit just because uh, what I said a second ago, where I feel like he was a little bit underutilized the last two seasons. Yeah, I, I had to. I think it was in the first or second quarter of that game that I just was like, I looked at Lucky Jackson's numbers for this year. And was like, man, he's been a really solid player. And I went back and looked at the numbers. He has 209 catches. That includes the bowl, um, the bowl stats, which, put, which puts him 19th all-time in Conference USA in receptions. And his 2,600, excuse me, 2,680 receiving yards puts him 25th. So he's top 20 in catches and top 25 in yards. Just goes to show you that for a guy who went really, you know, kind of underutilized and overshadowed because of the, you know, lack of success in the Mike Sanford era, put together a really nice career in Conference USA. So I just felt the need to mention that because it almost kind of snuck up on me that like, wow, you know, he's been a really solid player throughout his time. And, you know, another guy who uh, took a major step up is Ty Story. I mean, especially going from when he went to the beginning of the year, not being the starter. When I saw Western Kentucky, when they came to FIU, Stephen Duncan was the guy. And then when he gets the job due to Duncan's injury, is looked at as more of a game manager. Now he's slinging it around for 358 and two touchdowns. So it's great to see that. Gage Walker puts together 93 yards. And, you know, all in all, I mean, just what a turnaround. Nine and four. Give credit to Tyson Helton, who I've told the story many times on this podcast. When I heard him say that media days that, you know, hey, I'm the son of a coach and I'm a coaching, come from a coaching family. I know Western Kentucky. I feel pretty confident. I, I don't feel overwhelmed like this is a huge rebuilding job. I don't think I was the only media member there who heard him say that and thought, all right, this is just coach speak. You know, he's kind of snowballing us in a sense, but he was, he knew what he was talking about. He was more right than us. And uh, credit to the tops, uh, nine game win, excuse me, nine wins and, and a bowl game victory. So great job there. Absolutely have to be. Uh, I know I'm happy with the progress that the program has made in the last year or so under Tyson Helton. So we'll talk a little bit more about the job he did in a second. But first, let's wrap up the bowl season recap with uh, one more disappointing result for the league. Unfortunately, Tulane beat Southern Miss 30 to 13 in the Armed Forces Bowl. Uh, USM actually led at the half. But in that second quarter, they lose both Jack Abraham and to Michael Harris uh, to injury. And as a result, it was a completely different game in the first half. Tulane looked uh, 100% in control. Yeah, no, about, no, no doubt about it. I mean, you're talking about uh, between Tulane and Southern Miss, two of the most enigmatic, you know, mercurial teams in all of 
college football this year in terms of at times they look like role beaters and at times they look completely clueless. The unfortunately for Golden Eagle fans, they got the Southern Miss that I saw week one where Justin McMillan was on his game thirteen of eighteen for two fifteen and three scores. The uh rushing attack, not necessarily in potency, but just in efficiency, was really good for Tulane. And, yeah, you mentioned the injury there. I think that was uh, a huge factor with Jack Abraham exiting the game. Tate Watley came in through two picks. Uh, Trebensky Mosley as well, kind of their speedster back. You know, didn't really get going seven carries, 43 yards. Quez Watkins, though, was. And in his what turned out to be his final ball game uh, as a member of this league and as a member of the Golden Eagles, nine grabs for a buck 54 and a score. So he performed well. But, yeah, once again, just – it's just for Golden Eagle fans, you have to wonder this season at times, you know, it looked like they had everything figured out, you know, offensive coordinator, Buster Faulkner, the offense looked great. Uh, it didn't look, you know, kind of maybe stifled as it did in previous years, but then at times it looked like this and uh, seven and six record really quick, Joe, seven and six. I'm going to ask you two questions. One, if I told you at the beginning of the year that Southern Miss would finish seven and six, what would your reaction have been? And then if I asked you, you know, maybe six, seven weeks into the year when Southern Miss looked like world beaters, that they not only would finish seven and six, but suffer a bowl game loss in a decisive fashion, what would your reaction have been? I'd say that's pretty much like what I expected. I don't remember exactly what I said when we uh, previewed this season, but um yeah, I feel like this has kind of become a habit for Southern Miss. You know, at times they look fantastic, and then at, at times they have games like they did. And, yeah, you can credit part of it to the fact that they had, you know, their really solid quarterback uh, in Jack Abraham get hurt and, you know, another solid playmaker into Michael Harris go down. But, yeah, in terms of kind of overall how this season went for Southern Miss, uh, you know, this seems like more or less what they've done the last few years. Um you know, they get your expectations high with a really good performance, like what we saw out of Kez Watkins for a lot of this season. Uh, and just, you know, overall as a team, and when they won games, they looked great. And then, you know, at other times they were <laughs> very much not good. And that's, again, that's the definition of a 500 team. They were very hot and cold all year. And I'm not entirely surprised that they ended the season seven and six. Uh, but I guess I'm more surprised at the fact that it, it, it went down. I guess the season took such a nosedive at the end of the season because there was a moment towards the end there where they were still in contention for the CUSA West title. Right. Yeah, exactly. You know, and, and that's kind of my point is that it wasn't like they weren't in contention there in the end, but when you take a look, uh, take a look back at it, it almost feels like, you know, I was kind of doing a, a quick recap of the programs heading to 2020 because I'm going to write a way too early look at, you know, 2020 for uh, for next year for the site. And it almost feels like they still aren't in that upper echelon that they appear to be in earlier this year. So, you know, Jay Hobson definitely has his work cut out for him. 100%. It's going to be, uh, you know, a tough offseason for them when you consider how close they got. Um to winning their division, like we said, and then to end in this season is, is certainly uh, nothing less than disappointing. Uh, but for Kez Watkins, like you mentioned, he decided he's going to go to the NFL this week. Wish him the best. Um, had another really stellar year. 64 catches for him, uh, 1,178 yards. That is uh, his first 1,000-yard season and obviously his first 1,100-yard season as well. Uh, six touchdowns total. Um 
yeah, just a really solid season for him. Uh, him uh, being teamed with Jack Abraham worked out really well uh, most of the time uh, for Southern Miss and feel like he's going to make some NFL teams pretty happy. I don't think he'll be a, you know, a first-round pick uh, just with the amount of you know, wide receivers that are in this class. But, uh, you know, I think he's he's demonstrated that he kind of has the skill set to um, at least, uh, you know, get some decent minutes at the next level. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, anyone who's listened to this podcast knows I've been a huge fan of his really going back to the start of last year, really dynamic playmaker and his ability. I think two things might hamstring him. One, he doesn't have that, you know, I mean, he's got good size for a receiver, but he doesn't have that overwhelming, you know, 2020 Megatron, you know, Calvin Johnson, Mike Evans, you know, those guys type of size. Um, Also, I I think teams will be curious of, you know, kind of what his, um, and not that he had off the field issues. I want to make this, you know, specifically clear. He had some academic issues that uh, kind of played a factor heading into the, into this year. Not that he'll be taking quizzes or anything like that at at the next level, but I think teams will want to get that straightened out and see how uh, that works out, but definitely will be a, a, receivers selected i believe that but hey i could be wrong because i was someone who thought that tyree brady would absolutely be selected last year and i was wrong there but uh, i i I would be very shocked if if quez watkins was not nfl drafted same uh in that same vein we find out that d'angelo malone the uh, standout defensive end for western kentucky is going to return uh for more football at the college level which definitely works out well uh, for the tops was obviously a key piece of that defense uh, led the league in, in sacks and tackles for loss for most of the season. Um, you know, I think eventually when he does get to the NFL, I think he's got the perfect body type. I think he has, uh, you know, just that right combination of pass rush skill and just, you know, awareness to really cause problems in the backfield at the next level. But uh, for the time being, I'm, I think it's b- probably better for him that he just a has another season to just, you know, get even better at his overall game. And I think he could probably stand to get a little bit bigger because, you know, we, we've talked a lot about kind of how defensive ends have kind of evolved into, you know, this kind of position where the, the length is a little bit more important than just being clearly uh, muscle bound, like in the old days of football. But at the same time, I feel like he could probably stand to get a little uh, bigger if he, if he wants to thrive at the next level. Yeah, I think that's a fair point. I, I will say I was a bit surprised that he made the choice to come back. It's just because, you know, and, and the numbers aren't everything, but you look at the numbers and they're eye popping, you know, 99 tackles, 20, uh, 20 and a half tackles for loss, 11 sacks. But I, once you take a step back and then you ask yourself, and this is my opinion, you know, I think D'Angelo Malone is a heck of a player, but it's just my opinion here. When you look at him and you look at Alex Highsmith from Charlotte, I do think there is not, you know, a giant gap in talent, um, but I do think there's a clear gap in that Alex is better. And not only is he better, um, Alex Highsmith is much bigger. You know, I've seen Alex Highsmith in person. He is a mountain of a human being. So I do think in that regard, um, you could probably make the the case that, hey, if he goes back uh, next year and puts together these type of numbers and, you know, puts on 15, 20 pounds to his frame, maybe he could be looking at that surefire, you know, day one, day two draft pick, as opposed to kind of, you know, needing to put together eye-popping numbers of the combine and pro day to um, achieve that status. 
Yeah, uh, definitely going to be a good NFL career for both those guys, like you mentioned, I think, in D'Angelo Malone and Alex Highsmith. So we'll see what what happens with uh, their respective careers uh, in the coming months. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Uh, but for now, I think we've, we've put it off long enough. Let's talk about the uh, conference postseason awards for 2019. Uh, starting off with the Most Valuable Player Award. That, of course, went to uh, Marshall running back Brendan Knox. Uh, he finished the year with uh, 1,387 yards with 11 rushing touchdowns. Um, I don't dislike this pick. I think, you know, he was definitely probably the most consistent offensive player in CUSA this year. I think when you talk about some of the other candidates, um, you know, either uh, you know, just had off games here and there or uh, had, you know, came in late in the year and just really didn't have time to kind of pile up the stats like, uh, you know, Ty stories kind of who comes to mind there. Uh, or just, you know, I, I think, I think this is a good pick because I don't think there was an offensive player who meant more to their team's success than Brendan Knox this year. Overall, Marshall had plenty of issues and that was the reason, you know, they ended the season the way they did. Uh, but I think, had they not had Brendan Knox, this season would have gone much, much worse for Marshall. So I think it's a fair pick for most valuable player. I don't disagree with you. However, just to play devil's advocate and to make the case mm-hmm. for a guy who I know both of us believe, you could have easily given him the awards, Chris Robinson. Yes, Brendan Knox clearly, I mean, in the true sense of most valuable player, you take Brendan Knox off that team and Marshall probably doesn't make a bowl game, you know, and it's kudos to him for a guy who wasn't even on a depth chart when he got to Marshall, you know, you thought it was going to be Tyler King and guys like that, you know, for the next four years. So kudos to him there. I just think that Chris Robinson, when you look at his numbers, 28 touchdowns, only six picks, 3,700 yards passing, you know, completed 61% of his balls. And you're also talking to someone who is not a huge fan of uh, the postseason awards being strictly quarterback awards. It's part of the reason why I'm not a huge fan of the Heisman Trophy Award, because I think it's a, a quarterback award, you know. Uh, but I I would not have lost any sleep had Chris Robinson won that award. And I, it almost makes me wonder, in a sense, you know, just out of curiosity, if FAU had beaten Marshall, would that be his award? Um, and not saying it, that played a factor, but it just kind of piques my, you know, journalistic curiosity. If that, if the outcome of that game turns out differently, is that Chris Robinson's award? Because you look at not only the play of, of Robinson and Knox being, you know, kind of neck and neck. Um, and, and, and I think Chris was just as important to his team as well. But you also look at the overall record of both teams. And you have to wonder if that might not have been the deciding factor. Yeah, you know, it's tough to say. I think with the MVP, you know, I think you got to give that to – it's a combination of the stats and, again, like 
had Brendan Knox not been on Marshall, no, I don't think they would have made a bowl game. So therefore, he was absolutely the most valuable player to his team. And, you know, I think I definitely think Chris Robinson should have won CUSA player of the year. And I'll you know talk about that in a second. But with with Brendan Knox, I think you have to give the MVP award to a guy who uh, one has stats two uh, is clearly a difference maker for his team like he was. And B, you got to give it to a you know on a team to a guy on a team who uh, at least achieved some level of success, which is why somebody like uh, Asher O'Hara, for example, uh, didn't get the award for as good of an individual season as he had. His team, you know, he had no. Frankly, he just didn't really have anybody else in that team to help him succeed. So I, you know, you, you can't really give it to him because his team didn't have the record to back it up. But I again, I don't hate the fact that Brendan Knox won the MVP award because I think he fits that criteria well. Um, but I'll just let this transition into the next topic of conversation. I definitely think Chris Robinson should have won CUSA Offensive Player of the Year award. Uh, that, of course, went to Louisiana Tech QB Jamar Smith, um, threw for a league-best 281.4 yards per game, uh, 17 touchdowns, four picks on uh, 339 passing attempts. Uh, to compare that to Chris Robinson, um, was 291 of 471 on attempts, uh, threw one more interception with six. Uh, his completion percentage was uh, just 3% less, but he had uh, significantly more yardage with 3,701 yards compared to 2,977, and he had 10 more touchdowns. Uh, 28 passing touchdowns compared to Jamar Smith's 18. Um and his average yards per game, he only had six yards per game less than Jamar Smith through the air. So, you know, again, I definitely think you got to give Chris Robinson because he contributed so many more points. The only quarterback with more passing touchdowns than than him was Mason Fine. And, you know, North Texas throws the ball a, a million times per game. So we knew that was going to happen. And North Texas, you know, won four games, five games, whatever it was. So... You know, I feel like that kind of takes Mason Fine out of the running. Um, but to sum all this up, I think the th- it's crazy to me that they overlooked uh, the fact that Robinson had more yards and more touchdowns and still gave it to uh, Jamar Smith. You made a ton of points there, so I'm just going to take this one. Uh, and, and not that I'm saying that, you know, you took all the points there because I, I think all <laughs> the points are valid. It, it's, it's just the one that I – it's it's the one that I went into it even before you, you started talking and it boggled my mind and it's the one you left out. So I'll just take it. Yeah. Uh, Jamar Smith was suspended for a handful of games or for two games. Um, and uh, I, I just don't believe, and I'm not getting on my, you know, high horse here by saying, Oh yeah, this guy was suspended for X. So he can't, you know, win an award because Chris Robinson was suspended during the spring, but guess what? Chris Robinson didn't miss any games during the year. Um, and this isn't, you know, me coming down hard on Jamar as much as it is Chris Robson played an entire season. So I, 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 I am very bewildered at the fact that Jamar Smith won this one. Yeah. Uh, very strange indeed. And that's more of an indictment on like whoever, you know, whoever made this decision than it is Jamar Smith. Jamar Smith's a good player. Uh, and I'm, I'm sure he's a, you know, great young man, but yeah, the numbers kind of speak for themselves. And that, that decision is certainly a head scratcher. Um, on the defensive side of the ball, uh, D'Angelo Malone, 
Uh, I feel like we kind of saw this one coming from a mile away, Eric. Uh, really fantastic year for him. Finished second in the conference with sacks with 11 and a half and uh, third nationally in tackles for loss, uh, not just uh, leading the league with uh, 21 uh, tackles in the backfield. Um, and then also, I'm just reading off of the press release at this point, but registered at least one tackle for loss in all but one game this season and recorded 97 lost yards on sacks and 117 lost yards on tackles for loss. This guy literally lived in opponents' backfields all season. And, you know, I was already kind of losing it a little bit when they saw who won CUSA Offensive Player of the Year. But if they gave this award to – uh, if they gave this award to somebody other than D'Angelo Malone, I might have completely lost my mind. But I think this guy was a clear winner for that award and glad to see they made the right decision on that one. Completely agree with you there. The only other choices that you maybe could have even entertained were guys like Miko Dotson, who had nine interceptions and led the league. Or if you're asking me, once again, I, I, it would be, you know, astronomically hard for a defensive back to win this award, but Amik Robertson, just the fact that not only was he clearly far and away the best shutdown cornerback in, in the conference, and of course, along with that comes the fact that you're not going to get very many passes your way, but when you do get passes your way, he led the league in passes defense and was second in interceptions, and when he gets an interception, he takes it to the house because he had three pick sixes so uh you know just phenomenal numbers there that might have been the only one i could have entertained but all things considered this was d'angelo malone's award to lose from pretty much about the fifth or sixth week of the year and he did not so great job by him and that's just another you know nice little uh, award in his uh trophy case for him to take uh as he prepares for next year certainly the uh, certainly the case with him and then with the special teams player of the year award that went to Marshall kicker, Justin Rohrwasser. It may surprise you to learn dear listener that the first time a place kicker, uh, this is the first time a place kicker has won that award since 2005 and it's 2020 now. So 15 years since a kicker won the special teams player of the year award in CUSA, which is a little bit mind boggling to me. Uh, but a, a good year for, for Justin. So congrats to him. 17 of uh, 21 on, I'm sorry, 18 of 21 on field goal attempts this season. When you include the bowl game, um, not a bad year. That's an 85.7 percentage for him. Um, I would, you know, you could also make the argument that uh, Jose Borgales uh, could have won that award. If you're, if you're staying in the category of kicker, uh, he was 24 of 32. That's a 75, uh, 75% average on uh, or not average, but he made 75% of his field goals. Um, and then Roar Wazer as well uh, made a, uh, all but one of his extra point attempts, which, you know, it's, it should be automatic for a place kicker if you're kicking a PAT, but that's just me. Um, yeah. You know, it's crazy that a kicker hasn't won the award in this long. Yeah, absolutely. Because there's been some really solid kickers in this league. Um, but yeah, I think there wasn't really another choice. Although I will say this, if you listen to our podcast weekly, which hopefully at this point you should be, you know that Joe and I, uh, I don't want to say we made a stink, but uh, Conference USA selected a ton of long snappers to the uh, honorable mention team. So I guess we just thought that, hey, one of those damn long snappers should have won the award, right? Seems like there were that many who clearly needed mentioning, but I, I digress. 
Um, Justin Werwasser uh, had a phenomenal year as a kicker, so much so that he's taking his game to the next level and uh, declared for the NFL draft. So, you know, he's going to be uh, one of the top kicking talents at the Combine. But, yeah, you ran down the list of his numbers. Uh, Borgalis' numbers, some of those were enhanced by the bowl game, and everyone knows that he's a really talented player. And, unfortunately, and, you know, we can – quickly uh i'll just quickly mention this now that is the last of jose borregalos we will see in conference usa as he has chosen to enter the transfer portal so what a way to exit to usa with a, a four or five performance in the camellia bowl but yeah all things considered i think justin warwasser was not only the best kicker this year but the most consistent kicker this year and a uh, great job by him and win the award Again, congrats to him and congrats to all the award winners, including the freshman of the year, UTSA running back, Sincere McCormick. Uh, Second time in four years that a UTSA player took that award. Uh, I'm blanking on who the the other one was in the last four years, but I'm sure I can look it up in a second. Uh, Finished sixth in Conference USA and third among all FBS freshman running backs with 983 rushing yards. Uh, He had 300-yard games this year and ran for eight touchdowns uh, also had a receiving touchdown and 194 uh, yards receiving. I think this is a pretty good pick um, just because again, I, I can't really think of another freshman that we were talking about as consistently as we were talking about sincere McCormick this year, um, you know, in a year where UTSA, you know, really struggled on both sides of the ball. I feel like he and uh, Lowell and Arcees were bright spots uh, towards the end of this season for them. Um, UTSA, far from a complete team right now, but I feel like that backfield is, uh, you know, something really solid to build on as they move forward here. Yeah, absolutely. And the guy you were blanking on, and I don't blame you for blanking, because when you look at the past, you know, three or four years of UTSA football, it hasn't exactly been memorable. Uh, the mm-hmm. guy you were blanking on, was uh, Josiah Toafa, uh, was uh, freshman of the oh. year a couple years back. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, but that aside, uh, Sincere McCormick, I mean, yeah, definitely, you know, deserving of the award there. He was really I mean, he, when you look at just his not only his numbers, but the fact that he, he did this, you know, not just in big bursts. Right. But he was a consistent player all year long. Really, the you know, once the injury to Frank Harris happened and uh, you talk about, you know, little Narcisse and we'll see what their quarterback situation is heading into next year. But uh, throughout the season, I mean, Sincere McCormick was really the top offensive performer for the Roadrunners. And for me, I'm always going to give a preference or give a preference to those guys who come into it with, you know, uh, in terms of being freshmen with kind of a target on their back. And everyone knew that Sincere McCormick, I believe was a three-star kid coming out of San Antonio, local kid there and had the spotlight on him. And just to kind of be saddled with the offensive responsibilities, once again, when Frank Harris went down and a passing attack that's left a lot to be desired over the past two years, he performed, you know, beyond expectations and kudos to him winning the award. 100%. Like I mentioned, uh, UTSA has a lot to build on with him and Lewin Orsis in that backfield. And hopefully he'll be a key piece of the, uh, you know, the rise of UTSA football, if that happens in the next couple of years. And uh, for this last award, heading uh, heading back to Western Kentucky, where we have uh, Ty Story winning Newcomer of the Year Award. I think this guy's more than deserving considering everything that he overcame and accomplished this year. Came in for an injured Stephen Duncan, started the last nine games of the season uh, with seven and two in that time span. Uh, League best, 70.1 completion percentage, uh, threw for more than 2,000 yards, uh, 
through 12 touchdowns, only five interceptions. Also was not a bad runner, uh, ran for six scores and caught a touchdown. So really did everything that was asked of him and, uh, you know, was awarded with not only this, but also that that fantastic, um, you know, storybook win against his former team at Arkansas back in November. So, um, you know, I, I can't think of a more deserving guy and I can't think of a guy who had a more like storybook end to his college career. I mean, certainly like, I guess when I say storybook end of the year, you don't think of it ending in the uh, first responder bowl, but at the same time, uh, you got to be happy for Ty's story, um, you know, getting, I think, put in a crappy position at Arkansas and then to come over to Western Kentucky and not just have a fantastic statistical year, but uh, kind of lead a program back to winning ways and get to beat his old coach and get it, not just beat his old team, but get his old coach who benched him fired. That's just, you know, you got to be pretty happy for the kid. I mean, yeah, you talk about all that stuff and you can't, you know, underscore that. I'm just going to take the fact that, you know, once again, this Western Kentucky team was not one that we thought, at least I thought, was going to contend for any type of bowl contention. And the fact that he came off the bench. I mean, this kid, once again, was not the starter. You know, it was Stephen Duncan, you know, and the fact that Ty Story um, didn't pout, you know, how many grad transfers? I don't want to throw anybody under the bus because there's a name that comes to mind specifically, and I won't. Um, throw him under the bus. But how many grad transfers do we see? Here's what I'll use. If you remember a couple of years back, Joe, I want to say this was last season, um, Brandon Dawkins transferred from Arizona to Indiana and was a grad transfer and lost the job. And not only did he, if my memory serves me correct, you know, um, depart the team, I want to say he departed from the team like within week one or week two. <laughs> you know, I don't even remember him being on the travel roster to FIU, if my memory serves me correct. So how many grad transfers do you see, you know, especially at the quarterback position when you can only play one, uh, lose a job and say, hey, you know, not only am I going to stick with this, you know, he, he stuck around and, you know, uh, was there to benefit the team. And then he gets his chance, makes the most of it. You talk about all the things, getting a chance to get that redemption over Arkansas and helps lead this team back to, you know, bowl contention somewhere they hadn't been in a couple of years. So that's the biggest takeaway. And I think this has got to be a, you know, a really nice award for him to take home and say, hey, you know, um, in his final season uh, as a collegiate player, be the newcomer of the year award, you know, not a bad way to go out. Not at all. Uh, like I mentioned, you can't be happier for a guy who, you know, underwent, a, a again, a crappy situation in Arkansas and then kind of rose from the ashes, so to speak, to to accomplish what he accomplished. And, you know, who knows, might get a chance at the next level, might not. But, you know, if your college career has got to end, you know, you got to be happy that you ended it on a win and with some hardware. Um, and then one more award for uh, Western Kentucky. And that, of course, was the Coach of the Year Award. That went to Tyson Helton. Um, you know, we, it's, we've kind of beat a dead horse, so to speak, with um, how he's led that program back from, you know, the, the losing and the frustrating nature of the Mike Sanford era to, you know, not only be in contention for another title, which they were for most of this season, uh, but to get back to bowl eligibility and win a bowl game. So uh, I, you know, I think that's a pretty good uh, candidate for this award. Um, you know, you could have made the case for Lane Kiffin given how dominant his team was all year. Uh, but, you know, at the same time, I think, we all kind of saw that coming and we all know what kind of coach that Lane Kiffin is. Um, so, you know, I think this is a, I think it was a good decision to give it to 
uh, Tyson Helton because, again, he had not that he had less to work with, but he had a bigger challenge to overcome. Whereas I think we all kind of saw the success of FAU coming because we've seen it before and we saw it in the first year of the Lane Kiffin era, if that makes sense. Yeah. Hey, really quick, you know, when you do these podcasts on the fly, sometimes you will miss certain things. So really quick, I made a mention of Brandon Dawkins leaving the team at Indiana. Um, I just did some quick research. He left the team because he had some mental health issues and uh, he even mm-hmm. said that. So um, I want to make sure and, and take a you know step back. Hey, when I'm wrong, I'm wrong. So I, I want to apologize there because I did not know of the mental health issues that he was dealing with there that caused him to leave the team. Uh, mm-hmm. To get to the, the um, Coach B. Year Award, the big controversy down here was that Lane Kiffin did not win the award. I know a lot of people you know thought that Tyson Heldon, they, they just felt that, at least speaking from the FAU perspective, that Lane Kiffin was far and away the best coach in the fact that you say some people or it was more was expected of FAU as opposed to Western Kentucky. I agree with you, but I think it's a little bit closer than maybe that's made out to be because FAU was coming off of a year last year in which they didn't qualify for a bowl game. And while everyone thought that they had a lot of talent, they did lose Motor Singletary. They did lose Kareth White. And I think it was questionable maybe as to say, hey, which FAU team do you see coming to this year? Was it the one from 2017 or the one from 2018? And that was the case for Owl fans. But all things considered, you know, and I'm not saying it's just because I'm the FIU beat writer, I don't have an issue with it going to to, uh, Tyson Helton because, as I said, I didn't expect nearly what came from Western Kentucky this year. And the fact that, you know, he's managed to do it just in the first year, turn this program around, um, get things, you know, not only restore the enthusiasm among Hilltopper fans, but the players as well. I think, and, um, you know, you're probably more equipped to talk about this than I, but it just felt like, you know, the, and I'm not blaming Mike Sanford. It's not like he went there to do this on purpose, but the last two years just had sucked the life out of, you know, kind of, um, Hilltopper football there. So the fact that he did that in one year, I think uh, that alone in itself deserves um, uh, the mention for the Coach of the Year award. 100%. And with the lack of success that Mike Sanford had in football and with, you know, the circus that I feel like Western Kentucky basketball has been the last couple of seasons, you know, Topper Twitter was a depressing place for the better part of the last two and a half years. And now that Tyson Helton has managed to get this program back to where fans, you know, have kind of expected it to be for the last decade or so, there's way more life within the fan base at this point. And you're, you're very much correct in what you mentioned there. Um, And again, I don't mean to say that Lane Kiffin didn't deserve the award because he, you know, obviously was very successful in winning the league this season uh, did a great job with all the talent on his roster. But again, I think when you look at the challenge that Tyson Helton was presented with in, you know, having to pretty much just completely reshape the culture for the most part and uh, you know, kind of come in and pick these players up who, uh, you know, I would say a lot of them are probably, you know, especially these, the underclassmen were used to losing after, Uh, you know, being in that locker room in the Sanford era for those two years um, and to turn that around and get to the point where, Hey, you know, we, we we're Western Kentucky. We should be competing for conference titles year in and year out. Um, That's why I think he deserved the award. Whereas again, Lane Kiffin, I think he was just already kind of established. And I think 
speaking as someone who's not as close to the program as, you know, I would probably the average FAU fan, that level of success out of Western Kentucky was not as expected. Whereas I think with FAU, it, it was to a slightly higher degree, if that makes sense. So I guess that's my case for why I think this was the right decision. Yeah, most definitely. I mean, like I said, just the fact that, you know, I think it's one thing to do it on the field. And I, sure, you can say, hey, this isn't something that you're supposed to take into account. But when you really look at how depressed that fan base was and to do it just in this first year, um, I, I don't have an issue with the, the award going to Tyson Helton. All right. We are in agreement then. Um, with that, I think that's all we have for this week's episode of the Conference USA Underdog podcast. Thank you all so much for listening. Uh, as we start wrapping up, we'll remind you to follow at Underdog Dynasty on Twitter and like them on Facebook. If you'd like to follow Eric and myself on Twitter, I'm at J-O-E-H-I-O underscore Eric is at Eric C. Henry underscore. Uh, you can follow us for thoughts on, I don't know, football, life. Uh, I'm sure I'm going to have random stories from planning my wedding for the next year or so. So come be there for that. Uh, I can already tell you it's probably going to be a, a circus uh, comparable to Western Kentucky basketball, but we'll see. Uh, with that, we'll say thank you all so much. Uh, looking forward to talking to you again next week, Eric, and looking forward to talking to you, G5 football listeners. Happy football watching. Uh, looking forward to a great 2020.